first season of Through the Trees took us on a trek across cedar, visiting with professionals of multiple departments, ranging from the medical detox program to the spiritual center. We reviewed principles of harm reduction, dialectical behavioral therapy, and psychological testing. As we begin our second season, we venture beyond the forest, featuring episodes with health professionals outside the realm of cedar, each with unique viewpoints on the addictive disease and recovery. Welcome to our podcast, Through the Trees. I'm Pat Failing. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, this is Dr. Pat Failing, and I'm sitting here at Cedar at the Spiritual and Family Program. I'm really happy to join on our radio show today, Blair Thurston. Blair is the head of the Cedar Family Program, and we're talking about codependency on this episode of Through the Trees. Codependency has been a a very complex topic that is involved in family systems work, and we're going to explore it today on a deeper level uh, to be useful for clinicians and especially family members who are tuned into our radio show. Blair, thank you much for sitting down with me. Hi, Pat. Thank you so much for having me. So, Blair, tell me a little bit of your background. You are a family therapist by trade? is Yes. So, uh, I got my master's degree from the University of Colorado, Denver, in couple and family therapy. Um, here, I'm a behavioral health counselor, and I work with the families who have a loved one currently in treatment um, at Cedar. Okay. So, uh, so this topic of codependency. What, what does this mean? How do, how do we define this? Sure. So codependency is a dysfunctional relational style. Um, it's typically found in, um, in families where addiction is present and it could be defined as a phenomenon that happens when one person's mood, happiness, and identity are defined by another person. So An example of this could be um, a partner whose spouse is an alcoholic um, and the partner's well-being is completely defined by the well-being of of the addict. So how does that person know if they're having a good day if the other person is having a good day? And what happens is there's a loss of identity um, and an overemphasis in caretaking that happens um, kind of unidirectionally from, in this example, the spouse towards the person struggling with the addiction. So we must see this a lot here at Cedar. Yes, we see it all the time um, in families who come to our family week. We'll get a lot of concerns of, um, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells and I don't want to do or say something that will make the other person relapse. And there's this strong desire to want to control the, um, 
the be the behavior of the person who's going through treatment and the reality is nobody can control anyone else's behavior and so what happens is everyone in the family kind of goes down together as opposed to um taking a step back and learning how to set healthy boundaries so that not everyone has to spiral down uh, with the addict. Oh, sure. So I'm hearing you say that we have a couple ingredients to this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, it involves a family. It involves at least one person, but mm -hmm. I guess maybe more than one struggling with an addictive process. Mm -hmm. So alcoholism or mm -hmm. addiction in some way. And it sounds like there's what enmeshment and some some components of living in fear. You mentioned eggshells. Yes, um, there's definitely enmeshment happening. Um, it becomes blurry the lines between two people, um, and what we'll often see is one person is in fear, the other person is in fear. One person is angry, the other person is angry, and what we would hope for is that the family member can take a step back and get back in touch with their own experiences independently of the of the addict um we're talking about this in the context of a system mm -hmm. so like uh, i guess you could think maybe a, a married couple or a, a parent-child relationship can can it sometimes exist in isolation like can a can a person be kind of innately codependent themselves? Mm, that's a good question. It's possible, though it's a relational construct, and so it would show up in relationship. Um, and if one person has this way of being in relationship, it's likely that it would show up um, across the board um, throughout multiple relationships. Okay. So, the, in, so there would be almost like a somebody's at risk for being in codependent patterns? Yes. Um, yes. People who have a codependent relational style tend to come from dysfunctional family systems themselves. Um, they have often experienced trauma, abuse uh, themselves, and have really at the core of it, a low sense of self-worth, and there's this sense of needing to be needed. And so codependent people tend to seek out other people who need rescuing in order to feel good about themselves and make themselves feel, help themselves feel valued. Okay, so it functions as a, a pair. Like yes. You, almost like complementary to each other. Exactly. So what you'll find is a person who needs to rescue and a person who wants to be rescued. And this often shows up uh, when there's addiction because you'll have the per person who is struggling with the addiction and then you'll have the other person who wants to caretake. And what happens and the danger in this is that the caretaking behavior often feeds the addiction and perpetuates it. So by having this codependent dynamic um, where the codependent person wants to alleviate suffering in the person who is struggling with the addiction, it actually ends up making it worse. Um, and so an example of that could be, it could be something as dramatic as 
someone is going through really, really intense heroin withdrawal and for the codependent person, they cannot handle seeing their loved one in so much pain. And so in part to alleviate their, um, their distress at seeing their loved one in distress, they might end up taking, taking their loved one to a dealer to get a temporary fix so that the withdrawal symptoms will go away. Oh, sure. So that sounds very much like enabling. Yes, they are very similar. And enabling can be understood in simple terms as a destructive way of trying to help. Is enabling kind of the behavior and codependency is more of the emotional state? It's also, I would say, a relational style. Okay. Yeah, a a relational construct. Yes, a relational construct. And then, okay. So, um, do... What do we think in terms of root causes? I know you mentioned things about how people grew up in their family mm-hmm. and styles within their family, and then that places them at risk. Uh, how so? We tend to see roots in this with low self-worth. So rescuing, uh, rescuing because people don't feel good about themselves. Caretaking provides people, caretaking or rescuing, jumping in to save, provides people with a temporary hit of good feelings of sense, a sense of self-worth, um, much in a way, much in a similar way as an addict would get a, like a hit, a rush of dopamine from the drug. The codependent person gets those good feelings from rescuing the addict. Sure. So a lot of it stems from uh, needing to be needed and needing to be needed, low self-worth, like I just mentioned, and finding value and helping other people. This must be kind of tricky because I think being helping other people mm-hmm. is a good thing. Yes. Uh, having our own needs, it feels good to be needed. I wonder, is, what would you say to families, like, where's the where's the line in the sand? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what you're getting at is a difference between being interdependent versus being codependent. So humans are relational creatures. We need to we need to be in relationship with each other, and it's natural and normal and instinctual to be there for each other and want to rescue people when um, when they're hurting. And this is a good thing. Um, so what's what, the important distinction here is in a healthy interdependent interdependent relationship needs are still being met outside of the relationship and you have two fully formed humans um so one of the ways that i visualize um, enmeshment or codependency versus interdependency is if you imagine a venn diagram and you have two circles uh, that overlap each other in the enmeshed um, relationship you'll have two circles with a ton of overlap and two tiny slivers on the outside and a a lot of overlap in the center. And what happened, one of the dangers of this relational style is if the relationship were to end then and you erase one of the circles, then there's just a little sliver left of the other person in that circle. And sometimes the pain and the discomfort of 
feeling that void uh, where the other person was but isn't anymore is so excruciating for people that it keeps people in these dysfunctional relationships because it's better than the void of the other person not being there. And so my goal in working with these families is to try to strengthen their to strengthen their identity independent of the other person so that there can be a certain level of detachment in a healthy way. Um, yeah, so that you have two clear individuals instead of just instead a, of an overlapping fusion. It, yeah. Fused individual. Like I, I like your idea of the Venn diagram. The I, I actually saw a, one model that was it said a healthier version was almost like an atomic model, hmm. like almost with like you have to imagine like protons and neutrons mm-hmm. flowing around, and that that people would the these these particles had their own space, but they would come together and be bonded, but then do their own thing, and then would come together and be bonded. So it, hmm. I thought it was kind of interesting. <laughs> that image that you're reminding me, or that you're that you're talking about reminds me of the concept of secure attachment um, and having a secure base. So with babies and their moms, um, if there is a secure attachment there, um, the baby will come like come back to the mom and feel safe and nourished and held there. And then there's this freedom to go off and explore the world um, by themselves because they can always come back to that safe base. Mm, yes. So like, yeah, so the, the, the family is the molecule. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're part of a family, mm-hmm. um, but you have your own your own territory as well. You could be off at school. You could be back home. You could. That would be healthy, so that each person has their own their own life, their own identity, and there's overlap. Um, but the idea is that the people in the family aren't totally defined by everyone else in the family. Every person has their own unique identity. And what happens in codependent relationships is the codependent person completely loses their identity, um, their identity to the, to the addict or um, other person. So one thing that a common answer that I will, a common answer that I'll get from families that indicates a codependent relationship is I'll ask someone in the family, how are you doing? And they will respond with how their loved one is doing. Oh, okay. <laughs> that okay. happens a lot. Okay. The, um, yeah, I heard kind of a, a dark joke about this was you, you, you know that you're codependent if you're drowning and the other person's life flashes before your eyes. That would that describes it perfectly. <laughs> so you're so enmeshed in exactly. how you're doing. How long does it take for a relationship to move into this kind of style? Mm-hmm. Can it start? Can it? Can it always? I mean, can, right from the get go, can it be very quickly into this style, or does it take years? Or mm-hmm. um, I think that there there is a progression uh, with this relational style. So since this is a podcast about addiction, um, I'll use an addiction example. Um, you'll the intensity or the dysfunction of the codependent relationship is will often parallel the intensity or the dysfunction of the alcoholic of the extent of the abuse of drug of choice. 
So the worse the alcoholism, the worse the codependent relationship. Mm -hmm. Because as one person starts to spiral, the other person starts to spiral too. Okay, that, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about some of the history of this? The codependency is talked a lot about in behavioral health care and uh, therapists and different things. What, what were some of the origins of these, this kind of language and these themes? Sure. Uh, so the term codependency was coined in the, the late 1970s. Um, there isn't a consensus on who exactly coined the term, but it started popping up in the behavioral healthcare world around then. And it has its themes, though, um, going back to the 1940s, right around when AA was developed. Um, and the way that the way that this came about was right around when AA was being formed, um, the wives of alcoholics um, decided that they needed their own support group as as their husbands were struggling with addiction. And so the wives actually ended up meeting together, um, forming a support group, and actually started they came up with their own 12-step program that was very closely linked to AA. So this is what would in current time, so these were the origins of Al-Anon when the wives of the addicts started meeting to support each other. And the idea was that the codependents were people whose lives had become unmanageable as a result of living in a committed relationship with an alcoholic. So they kind of, the, the person with the alcoholism had to kind of come to terms that things were not sustainable, and then the loved ones had to kind of come to terms that the family culture wasn't sustainable either. Mm -hmm. So what was happening is even um, regardless of whether or not the loved one was... Uh, was in the depths of alcoholism or in recovery, everything was all about them. Um, so I'm thinking about Bill and Lois. The Bill's the founder of AA, and Lois is his wife. Um, even after Bill got sober, their whole relationship was about went from being about his addiction to being about his recovery. And so, regardless of whether or not he's actually using, um, it's about him still. And so for her, this was a chance for her to take a step out of that chaos and start getting back in touch with her own needs and, um, yeah, her own needs and her own identity independently of him because she was, she found that she was being defined by his disease. Oh, so she kind of was enveloped in, he was the centerpiece of the family. Completely. Uh, even when sober, he was the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. That That is something that commonly happens in families, in family systems, is when the loved one goes through a treatment center like Cedar, the whole family is there's this sense of relief that they that the loved one is getting better, is getting help. Um, and then as the loved one is getting closer to discharging, anxiety in the family starts rising, rising, rising. And then the patient discharges. And then the focus is all on the patient's recovery. And so it's like, so it shifts from 
um, like how much have you been drinking today to how many meetings have you gone to? Are you engaging in 12 steps? Are you doing this? Are you talking to your sponsor? And there's this obsessional quality about hyper-focusing on the other person um, in a way that is actually detrimental to the addict's recovery because it's very stressful. Um, it's stressful and they need room to breathe to have their own process in their recovery. And so when we work with families here and when I take them through family week, they ask, what's the best thing I can do for my loved one in recovery? And I'll say, work on yourself. Um, let them trust them to work like to work the, their steps, to focus on their recovery, and you need to focus on your recovery right now. And so part of what that can look like too is examine what examine the need in yourself to um, to fix, to save, to alleviate guilt. Like what is that about? Um, what comes up for you when you have this impulse to to constantly be wanting to fix or dive in or rescue the other person and can you can you sit with that discomfort i like what you said about trust mm -hmm. I, that seems to be a big part of this mm -hmm. is they even though we have people here that we treat at cedar who they recover they they sober up they're committed to change their their status within their family is still not trusted Sure. And so there's this undercurrent of fear sure. within the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, trust does need to be earned back. There, <laughs> patients can sometimes have this expectation, I just completed treatment, I'm doing so well, I come back and all sins should be forgiven, While as the, whereas the family is, they're still really struggling and they've probably experienced a lot of trauma as a result of the, um, as a result of the addiction. And so, yes, trust takes a while to earn back. And I would also encourage families though, to, to the best of their ability, um, try to lovingly detach from what is going on with the addict in recovery. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, so, Blair, what, what does counseling to heal codependency look like? Mm. It could take a few different forms. You can, you can go to individual counseling, and in individual counseling, that would be a great opportunity to explore the, the feelings of low self-worth and low self-esteem that often accompany codependent behaviors. And so one could maybe explore the origins of where that comes from and try to look at ways to increase sense of self-worth, increase identity, um, look for things that bring you meaning outside of the relationship. Um, so I think there can be a lot of healing done on the on an individual basis. And family counseling can also be very valuable because what can happen in family counseling is if you if you can bring an entire family together, then you can have in like in time real experiences of codependency in the room that you can then work with. So so if you get five people together, their real life scenarios are being reenacted right in front of you and 
the therapist, if they're skilled, can highlight those patterns that are happening to bring it into into the awareness of the family. And then the family can work together with the therapist to try to help change patterns in the family system. And Well, sure. I, I have a lot of experience with seeing families in my office where it would be, let's say, somebody's son who is struggling and the son is essentially silent in the office and all the and the parents and the and the siblings are all they're all talking Mm -hmm. like they're all so it's almost like the centerpiece the reason they're all there is to help the son who's not saying a peep right so if you have um if you have a skilled clinician in the room then they'll be able to navigate the those family dynamics to engage the um, engage the person who's not speaking very much and manage the group dynamic so that the people who are dominating the space step back a little bit and get create space to re-engage the other person. Sure. And the goal, really, you want to see systemic change um, because the idea behind family systems therapy is that if you have one one person change and then go back into a family system that hasn't shifted at all, then it's going to be a lot easier for that one person who has changed to just slip back into old patterns. And so the goal is for the entire system to shift. And that can't happen if the other family members don't engage in the process. And so And so in order to see long-term healing, we need every single family member to examine the role that they play. And what we hope for is flexibility Um, because it's natural that every, it's natural that uh, people assume different roles in family systems. That's, that's a good thing. Um, Where things get problematic is when people get stuck in those roles. So when someone gets stuck as the chief enabler or someone gets stuck as the scapegoat or someone gets stuck as the as the addict or someone gets stuck as the the hero or the lost child or the mascot those are all examples of different family roles um so kind of family role trying to identify the family roles i guess through the family work and then build some insight on how we might change them i guess or yeah, we want um so one of my favorite expressions is flexibility is the hallmark is the hallmark of mental health and we want there to be flexibility in the family system especially if someone is in early recovery and they are going to be hopefully playing a different role in the family if they're not the addict anymore. The family needs to adjust to make space for that person to do to be something other than the addict. Sure. Instead of having to always be at the beck and call of people, always be the rescuer. Yeah, because when people get stuck in those roles, then that breeds resentment. Um, Because a lot of this that happens is unspoken. People just naturally assume roles in the family. And then if they get stuck there, um, then that's uncomfortable and that's stressful. And there's no space for for people to have a bad day or so I guess one example could be if you are uh, one of the roles as the chief enabler and you have someone who is well if you have someone who's struggling with an addiction that is or another chronic disease who's chronically ill and it's and you take up 
take on that role to be the person who's always helping, then if you if you get sick or you're not feeling well or you have a bad day, but you're stuck in that role, then then there's no it's like it's not allowed for you to get sick or you're not free. You're not free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, there, I know there there was uh, another construct that came about in the 60s uh, by a it's like a young psychologist named Krugman called the the drama triangle mm-hmm. and it was all, it was kind of a simplified version of this and it was three like three roles the victim the rescuer and the persecutor and we see a lot of times where the person with the addiction struggle is the victim the the spouse or the the parent is the rescuer but the rescuer gradually gets resentful of the, losing him or herself to the process and then will then shift to being more the persecutor mm-hmm. or will shift to being the victim. Mm-hmm. And so it's very fascinating. We'll have people kind of moving around these roles mm-hmm. and, and it's very dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So one of the goals in working with families is to is to help them disengage from this chaos because people get so wrapped up in in this chaos in in the drama triangle um, that it's it creates this emotional roller coaster that is exhausting and so it's very hard to do and we try to help people disengage from that drama and so that means being okay with the possibility that your loved one might not make it and having and having to make peace with that. Sure. That sounds quite heavy it for, is, for anybody. Sure. Um, it is heavy. And that's the ultimate fear, right? Is that the, your loved one is going to die from this, from this disease. And when it comes down to it, nobody can, it just reminds me of the three C's of Al-Anon. Um, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. And people will dig themselves into the grave trying to control um, everything related to the person with this addiction. And so, and it doesn't help. Um, and often, the more we try to control, the worse it gets. And so, family members have to step back and stop trying to control because the addict is going to do what they're going to do and recovery has to come from them. It has to come from within them. Nobody can force someone to recover before they're ready or if they aren't, if they aren't fully on board. And I think there's this thing that happens um, in families and it's this sense of like, if I'm not doing something, then I'm then that's bad, then that's wrong, then I'm, I'm not showing them that I love them. And it, bri- it causes this guilt in people. Um, I feel so guilty for not, for detaching. I can't detach. I have to do something. But the reality is there's nothing that you can do that is going to, like, really determine whether or not that person stays sober. That has to come from them. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. 
so Blair, this is very good. We are, I guess, to kind of recap what we've talked about, we've kind of set the stage for how we would define codependency, talking a little bit about the history of this is very going hand in hand with peer support programs. And mm-hmm. even in addressing it is almost like one of the roots of where Al-Anon came from. Looking at family therapy, individual therapy, as trying to draw insight or build insight. I know you've alluded to this a little bit. What are the core emotions at play? Yeah. Um, The three core emotions that drive codependent behavior are fear. Fear is absolutely number one. Um, Fear, guilt, and resentment are the three big ones. Okay. So if we if we were offering guidance to a family member, would that be a good where good place to start? Almost mm. like see like do you score high on fear? Do you score high on guilt? Do you score high on resentment? And almost like tracking it backwards. Sure. Yeah. Maybe um, asking them to like notice notice if their action is being driven by fear, by guilt, by anger, um, and know that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, there's a different way to be in relationship with people. Um, and to me, it has this, there's this, there's this spiritual concept of surrender, really. Um, you have to surrender just as the addict has to surrender in their 12-step process. The family members have to surrender too to the reality that they cannot save their loved one. And once they're able to do that, um, and we, it would be call it, we would call it um, like detaching with love, then there is a peace and a serenity and an internal calm that is possible for people. Um, on the other side of that chaos. I think it's important for people to know that they can still be highly supportive mm-hmm. of people recovering. Yes. Like the, I know we've we've thrown out this topic before. We, we support people's recovery, not support the continued addiction. Yes. And that's a very big distinction. I, I don't, whenever I ask a new patient here at Cedar, uh, is your family member supportive? It's always a unanimous yes, always. <laughs> the, but sometimes I wonder, in what what do they actually support? Like, what patterns get reinforced? What patterns can change? Sure. So one of the problems with codependency in in a relationship where one person is struggling with an addiction is if the codependent person, not the addict, if the codependent person is constantly swooping in and doing things for the addict um, that the addict really could be doing for themselves, then they're robbing them of the opportunity to develop life skills that are going to be absolutely necessary for them to maintain sobriety. So the, the, the addict needs to learn how to a deal with challenging emotions they need to learn how to complete basic life skills like paying bills being responsible being accountable for their behaviors and if there's someone who is always swooping in and doing those things for them then 
nobody benefits. Um, they're never going to learn how to do those things on them, um, how to do those things for themselves. And it's so hard, or it can be so hard for the codependent partner to step back and watch their loved one struggle to figure this stuff out because there is going to be probably an immense amount of struggling to figure it out. And the codependent partner has to be able to tolerate watching their loved one struggle in order to allow them to develop the skills necessary to su survive in their sobriety. Almost like uh, I can raise the question of whose need is getting met in any given scenario. Is it actually, is it meeting the need of the addicted son, or is it actually, in a way, ironically, meeting the need of the caregiver mom? Honestly, I think more often than not, it's more meeting the need of the caregiver mom than it is the addicted son. And something else to pay attention to is how often are they actually asking, is the addicted son, to use your example, actually asking for help versus when the mom is offering unsolicited help. Mm, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because she thinks that he needs it, which, by the way, then also perpetuates this image of the addicted son being helpless and the victim, and he's too weak to do things on his own, and it, it keeps him stuck in that role. And then as our triangle phenomenon, then that mm. son becomes resentful that mom is picking up the pieces all the time. He then becomes kind of the persecutor. Mm -hmm. Mom then becomes the victim. Mm -hmm. Like, I I thought you just, I thought you wanted my love. Sure. And the son, the son could be resentful. How come you're not letting me do these things for myself? And how come, how come you're smothering me? That might come up. Um, why are you doing yeah, why are you doing all of this? I'm not asking this of you. Stop. Leave me alone. Give me space. And then the and then the caregiving mom could shift to the victim role and feel hurt. Why don't you appreciate all of this that I've done for you? I'm trying to help. I'm trying to do X, Y, Z. And you're so unappreciative. Sure. Well, very fascinating. If we were to give any additional reading information or books for family members? What are some of the examples that, w that people can read to learn more? I would, I would highly recommend the book Codependent No More by Melody Betty. Um, I've, I've, I use her work a lot when I'm working with families, and I think she's a great resource for really starting to understand how codependent dynamics play out in, in any type of relationship. Sure. And I know we're guiding family members in terms of do we think they're appropriate for individual therapy? Do mm -hmm. we think they're appropriate for family therapy? Mm -hmm. And I know one of the milestones that we care a lot about here at Cedar is this willingness to reflect and a willingness to change. Yes. So we do see families that I would call sometimes crystallized. They're they're too defensive. They are not really they they want the substance used to go away but they are resistant in some ways to change some of the subtle dynamics mm -hmm. within the family. And so that, then we'd probably more recommend individual counseling for them instead to get them to reflect on what kind of needs they get met through these dynamics. Sure. Um, I think that, yeah, individual counseling, absolutely. And um, what might be the most comprehensive wraparound 
way for families to um, heal from codependency is to engage in family therapy while also uh, independently on the side attending AA or Al-Anon meetings. And so if you can get the whole family together for family therapy, but then the, the person struggling with the addiction engaging in their own 12-step, um, doesn't have to be AA, but um, their own support community. And then I think it's vital as well to get the family members involved in their own support community. And so these two things can be happening at the same time. There can be, um, hopefully, a therapist can be working with the family on structural change, and that can look like how are how are roles going to be different in the family moving forward? How are we going to set boundaries? How are we going to effectively communicate? Um, how are we going to create space for people to do something different um, while also then going to having a support community to help with detaching from the outcome and learning how to set boundaries with with family members in early recovery. Sure. Uh, Blair, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners as part of this this episode on, on our podcast? Mm-hmm. I think that, like anything, it's a it's a muscle, it's a skill that needs to be strengthened. Um, it's challenging, especially the concept, the idea of like detaching with love. Um, that's so hard because it goes against it goes against human instinct, and it takes time. And so, as you're trying to do this in relationship with people. Um, be gentle with yourself. Know that it's not easy. It takes a while to develop this skill, and that's why it's so support so important to have support and people helping you along the way as your as your family is moving towards recovery as a whole. Well, wonderful. Uh, uh, once again, this was uh, Dr. Pat Failing, uh, Blair Thurston. We're here at Cedar as part of our comprehensive family program and really trying to uh, promote really good change with these families. Blair, thank you much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering CEDAR and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery.